All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Um, we got about halfway through the book, but just to keep everything in context, I'm going to reread Revelation 13, and then we're going to pick up in uh, when we start uh, in verse 11 when we see another beast. But let's, let's just start up at the top. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. To it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it caused all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slaved, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right, so let's walk through this. John writes in verse 11, And then I saw another beast. Rising from the earth. Obviously, this is in contrast to the first beast of the Antichrist. Now, remember, the Antichrist came from where? It came out of the sea. And so this beast comes out of the earth. That could mean that um, in ancient times that the idea of the sea was always scary. If, if you were living in 400 AD in Ireland, nothing was scarier than folks that could come across the sea. And so that represented confusion, ferocity, um, an inability to predict, whereas coming out of the land to, to a first century reader could mean something that was more meek, something that was less scary. 
Some have indicated that coming, one coming from the sea would be that he's coming from a faraway land that, that's unheard of at this time. And John doesn't know what name to place on that place. And that coming from the land could indicate that it's coming from someplace that's in the same place. We don't really know the, the details of what he's trying to say here. Those are just, he's just saying that one comes out of the earth, one comes from the sea. And it had two horns like a lamb. Now, in contrast, the second beast only had two horns. Remember, the first beast had uh, ten horns, or seven, ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on his horns. And so two horns uh, indicate that he is not characterized by the same massive might as the Antichrist. And unlike the savage, ferocious, fierce, and deadly Antichrist, who's compared to a leopard, a bear, and a lion in 13.2, the false prophet seems to be as harmless as a lamb. The ten horns on the Antichrist represented, we said from looking at, at Daniel, that that represented a ten-nation coalition. And so why there are two, um, there's a lot of speculation. Um, I think that what this is indicating, just like those ten horns with the ten diadems showed ten nations, I think that the two horns, since he is a religious leader, and we're going to see for, through the next few chapters, that this is a merging of multiple religions. He's going to be one that can, can pull together the, the, the Muslim and the Christian, the Buddhist and the, the, uh, the, the, the follower of, uh, of, of Krishna. And so that they would be able to, to be unified in this one meek, good, nicely speaking lamb. Um, it spoke like a dragon though. So here he's described as a nice meek little lamb and he speaks like a dragon. So he's still uttering the same words that the, the first beast is uttering. He is still Satan's mouthpiece. When Jesus is described as a sword coming out of his mouth, the implication there is not that, that, um, that there's a literal sword coming out of his mouth, but he's saying that what comes out of Jesus' mouth is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. That Jesus had the ability to say words that would cut to the quick. I remember... Um, very well. Uh, I was uh, in Turkey and I was practicing my Turkish and um, I, I actually would have two different ways that I practiced Turkish and one was to learn the religious language and to be able to, to speak about Christ is I had a guy who was actually in Quranic school. He was studying to be an imam and I paid him a little bit every, every week to sit down with me and I would just read the Bible um, and he would correct my pronunciation of the Turkish. And one particular day we sit down and before we got started he wanted to argue with me about the divinity of Christ uh, he said I, I the only thing that bothers me about Christianity is that you guys say that Jesus is equal to God and that's just blasphemous and so we go back and forth and argue and debate and for a good 10-15 minutes and he's getting angry and angry and angry and so I say well look I I'm not going to change your mind. You're not going to change my mind. Let we just get to what we need to do. And it just so happened that that particular uh, day I was reading from Revelation chapter one, uh, and as I read the John's description of Jesus and that throne room scene of Jesus and Jesus speak, starting to speak to the seven churches, I realized that it had been a while since he'd corrected me. Um, and normally he was a real stickler for pronunciation, and any of you who've learned a foreign language know what it's like to, to have somebody say, uh, no, it's no, and you would say no, 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 and you no, no, and back and forth, and you're like, I don't understand when, and so I was used to that, and then all of a sudden he'd been silent for a while, and I look up after reading out loud the words of Jesus, and this guy has tears rolling down his eyes. He said, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. 
Charles Spurgeon said, a lion doesn't need you to defend it. A lion needs you to open the door of the cage and get out of the way. And so Jesus' words were sharper than a two-edged sword. And here we read that this lamb, when he opened his mouth, was ferocious and destructive in his voice, what he said. Now, we, again, we think of destructive language being yelling at somebody, cussing at somebody, screaming and hollering at somebody. But oftentimes, the most destructive things ever uttered is, they're there, it's going to be okay. If you go to the doctor and you've got cancer, you don't want him to sit there and say, it's going to be okay, don't worry about it. No, we want to come up with a plan. And yet, there are TV shows that people love where a person seems so quiet and nice and meek, and they just say, you know what? God ain't made no junk. You just believe what you want to believe. That is destructive. That is wicked. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. Now, the I'm glad that John worded it that way because some commentators and some theologians have said that the, that the first beast and the second beast are, um, that the first beast dies and that the end of the tribulation that's being ran by the second beast. And why that really can't be possible is this sentence and the fact that when Jesus comes back that both the Antichrist and the, 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 the beast are cast into the lake of fire together. And so they're two separate entities. And so I think it's important for us to read this and recognize that the authority that the first beast is, the authority that the beast, okay, let's start saying it this way. The Antichrist, the first beast that's talked about here, we'll call the Antichrist. The second beast is the one that typically theologians call the beast, and that is the false prophet, okay? And so his authority is based on what the Antichrist is doing. He takes all of his authority from him, and we read in the first chapter, and we saw a few weeks ago, he gets his authority from who? Satan. And so, yes, we're moving down the chain a little bit, but not far. So it exercises all authority on the first beast in its presence. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Remember, we, we saw last, last time that the, the, bee, the Antichrist is going to be wounded whether or not he's really killed and raised from the dead or, or he's injured badly and everybody's false reported that he's dead and then he's alive again. The text is unclear. Um, regardless, as far as the world is concerned, they think that he died was mortally wounded, and then was raised from the dead. And the, this guy, the beast, the false prophet, is the one that's going to perpetuate that lie. And he's the one who's going to use that story to get the entirety of the earth to, to worship him. Now, you may ask, how is, how is somebody going to do that? I had a conversation with someone today about that knew we were studying this and, and came up to me and started asking some questions. And I, he was saying, I don't, just don't understand how all the world is going to worship the Antichrist. And I, I, I want you to understand that when he's being presented to the world, they're not going to call him the Antichrist. They're going to call him Jesus. They're going to say, Jesus has come. He is the Messiah. He's the sent one from God, which is what the word Christ means. Now, everything that he says and done does will be the opposite of what Jesus would say and do. It's why we say anti. But there, he's not going to be presented as if he's evil and wicked. He's going to be presented as the salvation of the earth has come. This guy's the real deal. 
You know, all these Christians believe this fairy tale that Jesus rose from the dead. This guy actually rose from the dead. We all saw on YouTube when he died. So the false prophet is going to perform great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. Now, again, this is exactly opposite to the way that Jesus worked in that Jesus did great signs so that the world would believe. In John chapter 2, it says, after Jesus turned the uh, wine into water at the wedding, he said, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did it Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I cannot believe that no one caught that I said Jesus turned the wine into water. Come on. <laughs> so... That miracle was a sign that showed people that Jesus was real. In John 6, 2, the same thing. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. It's not unusual or new that, this, that whenever God does something, the enemy tries to fake it. We read in Exodus chapter 7, uh, verses 22 through 23, this. The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went to his house and did not take even this to heart. So whenever Moses and Aaron could do a miracle, Satan could replicate that miracle, whether by fakeness and sleight of hand or whether Satan actually worked to, to, to create snakes from sticks. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Pharaoh saw it and said, well, this isn't miraculous because these guys can do the same thing. And so here we see the sign that the, the witnesses, remember, were given the authority so that if anybody attacked them, fire came down from heaven and protected them. Well, bam, the false prophet's able to do the same thing. He's able to call fire down from heaven. And so Satan loves to be a counterfeit. Satan's greatest I just read this quote by, by R.C. Sproul as I was studying for our Sunday series in the book of Luke. And he said, most people think that Satan's perfect creation is the prostitute. And in reality, Satan's perfect creation is the Pharisee. From the outside, he looks like he's got it together. Satan loves to create fakes of God's real thing. And he does that throughout human history. And so he does that here with the false prophet. So he's working signs, and by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. Now notice here that when we're going to see this over and over and over again, he was allowed. And John wants to make sure that we remember that God has not lost control. It would seem that here you've got false prophets who are doing same miracles of God. You've got somebody coming up that the world is saying is Jesus. Surely God has lost control. And so John wants to remind us over and over again who is in control. He's allowed to do this. This is in God's plan. Once again, we see that Satan and his work is God's unwilling lackey. That the false prophet here, even now, is only able to do what God allows him to do. <coughs> it, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So he's going to make an image. And it was allowed to give breath to the image, which is, again, a counterfeit of 
what we read in Genesis chapter 2. And then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so God was able to give breath to who he formed from the, the ground and he lived. Because it says it gave him the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So here we read that it was able to give breath. Now a little bit of Greek. Um, you all here had to take in 7th uh, or 8th grade, you had to take biology. The Greek word for life is bios. And here what John says is that he was allowed to give him breath, pneuma, um, but it doesn't say that it was alive. Now, if you go and read a, a commentary from the 15th century, uh, they're going to say, and they're going to speculate within their realm of knowledge, that so they're going to make a big statue, um, and that statue somehow is going to be able to, to be like it's alive. Um, today, uh, we realize of what... Uh, this could be implying that would maybe even make a little bit more sense. Um, you have artificial intelligence uh, in your pocket right now. That's like it's alive. It can make decisions. Um, in fact, I just a few weeks ago read an article in Business Insider that uh, the ethicists are being hired by uh, Tesla uh, because the, in the self-driving cars that are being developed, here's the question. If you're driving down the road and the car, the car that you bought with your money, is recognizes that if you're riding in the car, if it goes in one direction, it will save your life but kill five people, or it can run you into a, a stanchion and kill you, what do we have to program the car to do? I mean, you're the one who paid for the car. And people aren't going to buy a car that has code in it that's going to kill you. But what if there's a school bus on the side of the road and the car recognizes 50 people? And so there actually has to be an AI, an artificial intelligence, that has to make that kind of decision. And so on your phone, there's lots of AI, lots of artificial decisions that are being made all the time. Have you ever noticed that, that uh, your phone, you're sitting there for a while and it doesn't, Go da-ding that you've got a notification, but you pick your phone up and you start looking at a different app. I have this, this is why I don't keep up, I don't use the Bible on my phone as a primary device, because this is what happens. I've been sitting here, I've been preaching and teaching now for 42 seconds, and my phone hadn't gone ding once. I'm going to test it. If I open it up, and it didn't even take that long, just went da-ding, I've got two notifications from Facebook. Now, why did it do that? Because Zuckerberg wants me to open Facebook. And if, I'm, if my phone is sitting here or in my pocket and it goes to ding, I'm likely to go, huh, it's just Facebook. But if I'm opening my phone and I'm opening my Bible app, there's AI in that software that will say the fastest way to get a look from him is to hold that notification until he's doing something. And it will actually learn your behavior, what's the best way to get you to open Facebook. Because the way that they make money is every time you open Facebook, it's going to tell you, you got to buy some socks or whatever it is, whatever you've been talking about. And it, if, if they can say it doesn't listen to your conversation, but that's a lie. 
Just the other day, Ann and I are sitting around, and uh, I, I'm, sit, I'm saying to her, I've got to do a brake job on the Jeep, and literally picked my phone up and, and started looking at Facebook and immediately got a, a notification from um, one of the Napa, one of the car, car, it's actually the one right here, and it said $25 um, card if you buy all four brakes from us. And you can't tell me that that wouldn't listen in. And I joked and said, my FBI gets me. My FBI guy gets me. I'm so glad. And I, you know what? I used it. I used the coupon. I had to buy brakes anyway. And so 25 bucks off, is, that's $25. But there's all kinds of intelligence going on in this. And we're not real far. A deep blue can beat anybody that wants to play it in chess. Humans can't. It can make it way bigger decisions, and it's not distracted by the pretty girl that walks by or somebody humming over in the background. It's just going to do what it's going to do. And so if you think about it technologically, that makes a lot more sense than a statue that, that when we think of an idol, that somehow that an image of the, the Antichrist is going to be put in such a way that it seems like it's alive. It can speak. It can think. It can talk to you. What if we had a, 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 on every phone some kind of software that could watch what you were doing, see what you were doing, and that would tie into the fact that he, you can't buy or receive without the mark of the beast? Because right now, I, I pay for stuff with my phone all the time. You just walk up, and 90% of the stores, again, you can't do it a big chief, but 90% of the stores in Gadsden, um, if you, you, you're at Walmart and you get your stuff, you don't have to take a card out anymore. You can take your phone and bump it. And there's the purchase. When, what's the last time you got a paycheck in your hand that actually was worth anything? Well, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. When I, was, I remember very well when I first joined the Marine Corps. We literally had a guy that came around and set a table up in 1989 and counted out money. And then they said, nope, we're not doing that anymore because we don't have pay clerks. And so everybody's got to get on, um, has to get on uh, direct deposit. Everybody's got to do it because we're not doing pay clerks anymore. If you want your paycheck, you got to do that. I, I don't even, I rarely have cash. I've learned that if I get cash, my kids take it. Um, or my, my, my kids go to my wife, and then she gets it. I've probably three or four times gone to the barber shop, knowing that I got $10 in my wallet, got a haircut, and then went to pay, and there's nothing in my wallet. And so I end up having to pay them and change that I get out of the ashtray and be like, you know, 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, 66, 67, 68, 69, and so pay them that way we get the money direct deposit, and, and it's all electronic. And it seems like it's alive. I mean, it, it tells me, I've got apps that tell, tell me what, what to do all the time. If this was being used nefariously, and who's to say that it is or isn't, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that we need to be a bunch of Luddites. I'm saying that we can see some of the mechanism that the enemy would use. And we, the idea of, of an idol that that seems alive, has breath, doesn't say that it has life, makes a lot more sense in our day than it did 100 years ago. Because we walk around, I'm preaching from a computer. And so, that's neither here nor there. The text doesn't explicitly say that. To me, uh, that just seems to make a whole lot more sense. Because it causes 
both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. Now, it says that they're to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Is this a literal mark? There can be an argument that it would be. I've seen people say that I'm, I would never, I read that there's a company in Canada that's requiring all of its employees to get uh, RFID chip put in their, their hand so that they can, their time clocks, they can just put their hand up against the boop, and that eventually that that will get to a point where instead of having to have your phone that goes boop, you could just, you're just, it's in your body. It didn't even have to go that far because you're, it's close enough now to where fingerprints will soon, in the next year or two, at ATMs can replace your um, card so that you don't have to go up to the ATM and swipe a card. You can just go up and put your fingerprint on it, and then it'll boop, boop, send you the money or tell you, like me, say you don't have any money, so go away. It could be a literal mark or it could not be. And it's not uncommon for the Bible. In Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, God says, And you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And we know that Orthodox Jews take that as they actually take a little box and put God's word in it, a little bitty box and leather straps, and they tie it to their forehead whenever they pray. And so they've got a little box right here, and they tie one to their arm so that there's a little box here, and it's got the Bible on it. But we read that and say that that's what that's saying. It should be in your mind. It should be in your thoughts. And it, the symbolism of being on your hand is, is that it affects everything that you do. And we say that, that if a person comes to church on Sunday and prays and says, praise the Lord, and then goes out and acts like a heathen on Monday, then they're not living it out. If a person doesn't actually know what the Bible teaches or believes, then they don't have it in their head. And so this could be a literal mark, or it could be, that it's affecting the way people think and affecting what they do so much that it's marked them. I tend to think toward the latter, that this is symbolic of the fact that the mark of the beast will affect the way everybody thinks about everything so that everybody's thoughts are changed and askew and it affects what everybody does. I wouldn't argue that, though, because it does say that there's a mark and that it goes into detail on the mark. It says that without the mark, no one can buy or sell. And, then, and so what is the mark? It's the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, the number of a man. Now, what does 666 mean? And I, I, before, don't read this yet. I'm gonna, we're going to read it together. But throughout human history... It, People have gone to great depths to speculate what this means. In Hebrew, um, they don't use, they don't have like a Roman numeral one or two. The way that they would signify one would be with the letter A. A leaf, bet, uh, and so is one, two. And so the numbers are letters. If they're writing a number out, they write those letters out, and contextually you're able to figure out that that's numbers and not letters. Latin does the same thing. If you ever see Roman numerals, they're numbers, right? I mean, they're letters, L-X-I-I. I remember when I was a kid uh, learning Roman numerals, and it used to be on movies that they would put up the date, not in uh, 1965. It was MCD. Uh, XX, and I remember always going, okay, so let's see, the MCD's 19, and then the XXX is 30, and then, then, then it would be gone. And I'm like, ah, I don't know, like it matters that it's 1938 or whatever. But um, So that's not uncommon at all. So Nero's name, his Latin title, 
under certain circumstances and certain transmogrifications, spell out or add up to 666. I think uh, it's, they list out. So there's been no end to the speculation as the significance and how to calculate it. In Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, letters have numerical equivalents. And a myriad of schemes to associate the names of historical individuals with the number 666 have been put forth. Nero, Caligula, Domitian, Hitler, uh, Napoleon, Mussolini, Stalin, and a host of others. Uh, I, if you get a Protestant commentary from about 1540 all the way up to about 1800, they will argue, argue, argue that this is the Pope. The official title of the Pope's name is spelled out in Latin, and it makes 666. And they'll have an argument, and they'll argue to their grave. All of those commentaries, the Pope is the beast. And that the Pope, after the the tribulation, that the Pope is going to, the only person that's going to be left is going to be here, and he's going to be able to merge the two horns, or him merging Islam with Catholicism and making a false religion. And bam, there you go. It makes such perfect sense. And, and if you go to Turkey uh, right now and talk to Christians taking this same class, they will say that the new Rome is the Ottoman Empire, and Erdogan uses a lot of language and talks a lot about how he is bringing the Ottoman Empire back. That's the new Rome. They figured out a way numerically that his name, Erdogan, it spells out 666. So clearly, Erdogan is the Antichrist. The Ottoman Empire being restored right there from Turkey is going to take over, and Islam is going to be represented, and Erdogan's going to be the Antichrist, and the imam of his choosing is going to be the false prophet. And, so, and they believe that, and they're afraid of that, and they're scared for that. In fact, I've read some English written books that say the same thing, that Turkey and Erdogan is, is Antichrist. Actually, there's a guy that lives right here in Glencoe that when he found out that I lived in Turkey, came and sought me out, and he said, did you get to meet the Antichrist? And I'm like, excuse me, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he goes, did you meet Erdogan? I said, yeah, I actually did get to meet him. Well, what, did he feel evil? And I'm like, that's not how any of this works. Um, but they believe very strongly that it's going to be Erdogan. Um, and I've read book after book after book that if you go to the persecuted church in China, they are absolutely convinced that the premier of the Chinese government is going to be the Antichrist. And in China, they have decided that they're going to take over all the religions. And so they appoint who the next, any bishops in China are going to be to be a part of the the church. They appoint the person who's going to be uh, any imams. And the government appoints who's going to be the next Dalai Lama. And so there's actually a person who's the secretary of religions, and his job is to appoint people through all that stuff, and they will argue that China is the new Rome, and that that, uh, um, that, that secretary of religions is the Antichrist, because he's the one that controls all the religions, and he said, tells people, either you all get along, or I've got a 7.62 reasons why you're going to get along. And so my point of bringing up these examples are, is it's futile for us to try to sit around and figure out who these people are going to be because it says more about us than it does about the text. And so we read on. All such speculation is futile. Since the Antichrist is still to come, the number 666 cannot be associated with any historical individual. And so anybody that wants to argue that 666 is Nero or Caligula or Domitian or Mussolini, that doesn't, 
can't be because those people are dead and the Antichrist hasn't come yet. This is what he's saying here. The church father Irenaeus cautions against speculating against the identity of the person associated with the number 666 until the person arrives on the scene. Robert Thomas gives a very reasonable perspective, and I'll quote Robert Thomas. The, the better part of wisdom is to be content that the identification is not yet available, but will be when the future false Christ ascends to the throne. The person to whom 666 applies must have been future to John's time because John clearly meant the number to be recognizable to someone. If it was not discernible to his generation and those immediately following him, and it was not, the generation to whom it will be discernible must have lain and still lies in the future. Past generations have provided many, many illustrations of this future personage, but all past candidates have been proven inadequate as fulfillments. And I will say here, because they're dead. Christians from generation to generation may manifest the same curiosity as the prophets of old regarded their own prophecies, which Peter talks about in 1 Peter 10 through 11. But their curiosity will remain unsatisfied until the fulfillment arrives. Now, clearly, six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. Um, slaves, after six years, were freed. That throughout the Bible, the idea of six is the number of man, which John alludes to. Seven being the number of completion is God's number. Six is the number of man. So I think that, that what these illustrious authors are trying to tell us is, is that John, in saying, let him with wisdom understand what I'm saying, is that he is passing a note, if you will, along to those believers who get saved under the ministry of the 144,000 of this is who we're talking about. And until we're there, and we ain't going to be there, remember we're eating church eggs right now, that we won't be able to figure this out. It's a futile exercise for us to, to, to go through life saying, Obama's the Antichrist! Or Trump's the Antichrist! Or Bush is the Antichrist! Or, ah, the Antichrist! Because that's stupid. John recognizes that, so that's why he says in 1 John, there are many, the, you have heard that it said the Antichrist will come, there are many Antichrists among you now. If anybody denies that Jesus is the Christ, if anybody denies that Jesus is God in human flesh who has come, he is an Antichrist. So rather than worrying about whether or not Trump or Barack Obama are the Antichrist, what we need to be focused on is proclaiming Jesus is the Christ. Because that's what we're called to do. Not to sit around with, with magnifying glasses and, and metal detectors trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. But it's, again, it clearly can't be Nero, Hitler, Mussolini, those, any of those people because they did. Right. And we, we look like idiots when we keep changing it. It's like the guy, I don't what was his name that a few years ago said, Jesus is for sure coming back on this date. And then when he didn't come back, he's like, oh, oh, I miscalculated, it's this date. And then when he didn't come back then, it's like, oh, I miscalculated. But by then, everybody had walked off because, I mean, how many times are you going to miscalculate? And how many times are you going to skip the verse in your Bible where it says, no man knows the day or the hour? What we need to know and what we need to see from this is that, A, false prophets come. And they sound good. 
And the way that we can tell if a person's a prophet or false prophet is whether or not what they say aligns with this book. Not like our generation says, well, I just don't feel, insert thought here. It really bothers me when I hear Christians say, I know that the Bible says, but I feel like. Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter how I feel. Our feelings, the seat of our feelings is our heart. And the Bible tells me that the heart is a liar above all things and is desperately wicked who can know it. There's a lot of times in my life that I haven't felt particularly like parenting. Can I get an amen? Amen. There have been a lot of times in my life that I'm sure my wife has not felt like remaining married to me. Today could have been one of them because my keyboard wouldn't work today. I'm trying to type these notes out, and I'm, I'm literally throwing the keyboard in the parking lot and mad, and she can't, comes in, and I'm like, type this! Ah! I know that when that happened, when she walked in, and I'm spent there for three hours, I pull, literally pulled my hair out. Look how short my hair is now. Um, that she didn't feel much love toward me because I was being a jerk. But our feelings aren't what we go on. And as Christians, we need to recognize that this false prophet comes and he sounds smooth and he sounds good and it sounds like it's the right thing and he can do these miraculous things. And surely, and yet he tells us that he's echoing the words of the the Antichrist and the Antichrist is uttering blasphemies. So if it doesn't line up with the book, if any, you ever hear anybody, preacher or not preacher, say, God said, and the words that follow their, out of their mouth don't have a chapter and verse assigned to it, run. Run. All right. Lord, I pray that you bless the reading and preaching of your word and the obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.